this is really what we read here in this chapter. He's going back over his life. He's sharing his past, his B.C. days, his conversion and what he did after his conversion. Paul the Apostle was a radical. He never did things half-hearted. As a Jew, he was a radical. As a Christian, he was a radical. When he persecuted the church, he went all the way. And when he was saved, he went all the way. Radicals are difficult to understand. We have a tough time understanding them. Because they're so intense in the way that they live. But you get a radical saved and turn him loose on the landscape and watch out. He goes, where are them sinners? Show them, point me in the direction. And you remember the Roadrunner cartoons, you know, that run down, and a cloud of dust? That's a lot what they're like spiritually. They just, you know when they're around. Their cloud follows them everywhere. Paul was intense as a Christian. A real radical. But so refreshing are these kind of people. Because you know right where they stand. Now, in these verses, Paul talks about his past life before he was saved. He talks about his conversion in verses uh, 15 and 16. Then he talks about what happened after his conversion. Paul had a lot of friends, but he had a lot of enemies. And there was one particular group of people who hated his guts and were really trying to destroy his ministry. They were called the Judaizers. Now, these were Christian people, okay? These were in the church. And the Judaizers were well-intentioned dragons. They embraced Christianity. They believed in the gospel, but they believed the gospel was for one group. Guess who? Them. And if you wanted to become a Christian, you had to be a Jew first. Well, you've got to realize some of the background and mentality of the Jewish people before they became a Christian, before they were saved. Jewish people believed that Gentiles, that's you and me, anyone who's not a Jew, was created to fuel the fires of hell. See, that, that's the reason we were created, is to kindle the fires of hell, to make it hotter. And that's what, they had a saying that said that. Not only that, but a strict... Pharisee would never help a Gentile woman in labor who is having a child because that would mean that they would bring another Gentile into the world. So they would leave her. So that's the kind of mentality that is their background. Now all of a sudden they become saved. And it's tough many times to break those shackles of traditionalism. You've been taught a certain way all your life. Many of you know that. Many of you were brought up in certain traditional forms and ways. And as soon as God liberates you and you become a Christian, there's still some of those things that are hard to break hold of. You're used to doing things a certain way. You're used to saying things a certain way and seeing things done a certain way. And it's hard. It was hard for these Judaizers. And they were going around and they were accusing Paul the Apostle of not being authentic. And they would run around and they'd say, don't listen to Paul. He's not a real apostle. He's not one of the original twelve. You can't trust him. He has no authority. Who gave Paul his authority? He preaches this gospel of grace. But nobody gave him authority at all to preach it. That's why in verse 1 he says, Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He goes, you want my credentials? Here it is. The real issue 
that we're going to cover this morning is Paul had to convince people that his experience was real. How could Paul show these people that his authority was from God? And he had to convince people that the work of God in his life was real, was lasting. It wasn't something that he invented or he made up. And so in verse 11, which we haven't read yet, he says, I make known unto you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man. I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is going to prove that the gospel is real, not by apologetics, not by pointing to verses of Scripture, but by showing that certain things happened in his own life. So he gives his testimony, his autobiography. And I always like autobiographies of great men. And I feel as I read this that I know Paul. You know when you read somebody's writings long enough, you feel like, I know this guy. You see how he thinks. You see how he acts. And so we're going to get to see Paul in his autobiography today. Portrait of a radical. I hope, I pray, that many of you will get a little more radical in your faith. John Stott, a man I respect, said that the, concerning the Christian church, he said, we are respectable, we are conventional, we are inoffensive, and we are ineffective. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go out and get harsh and unloving and cruel with everyone in the name of being radical. I'm saying that we hold up that banner of no compromise. And as Paul the Apostle, when he made an about face for the Lord... He had his foot down on the accelerator all the way. Let's look at his past life, his B.C. days. All of us can remember what we were like before we were saved, right? There are certain things you remember about yourself. We tend to forget those things, however, as time goes on. I think we tend to think how bad it really was. And this really was brought home to me. I mentioned to you before my high school reunion a couple years ago. As I went there and I realized how much different I was from these people that I went to school with, how much I had changed. It was good for me. I saw people who had never changed. I mean, the same lodies and lowlifers in high school, many of them were the same way. And this high school reunion was at the campus and they were sitting in the same place, I think wearing the same clothes. <laughs> Hadn't changed them for 10 years. And I thought, oh, I was like that. That's hard to believe. Paul is looking back in his whole life. And what we see, first of all, is that he was an exceedingly religious person. He says in verse 14, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now, Paul was a Pharisee. That meant that he was... Mr. Legalist. The word Pharisee means the separated ones. They looked at the corruption in their religion. They looked at the corruption in the Jewish priesthood and they said, we're going to withdraw from this. We're going to live holy lives and raise the standard of holiness. Well, that standard of holiness turned into legalism pretty soon. And they became so spiritually proud and so self-righteous that they stunk. He was a very religious person. The Pharisees had 613 laws that they extracted from the Old Testament that they had to keep 
All of the implications of these 613 laws, 248 of them were positive, 365 of them were negative. That was Paul. Uh, hardcore Pharisee. Legalist. Being very religious. Now, you notice in verse 14 he says, I advanced in Judaism. The word there is an interesting word. It means to blaze a trail through. In other words... He was a trailblazer spiritually. He was a pioneer. It's the word to blaze a, a trail or a path through wooded area. Paul said, I was a pioneer, man. I made headway religiously. I came up with new ideas. I was a leader. He was a religious leader, a, a guy who would not be afraid to go ahead of the crowd. We know that he went to school in Jerusalem and his teacher was a guy named Gamaliel. Gamaliel writes about Paul and he says, I never had a problem with Paul, except I could never give him enough books. The guy was a voracious reader. He'd always be reading and learning and understanding. Now, he advanced, or he was a pioneer, more than all of the other people that were with him, his compatriots, his classmates. He graduated top of the class, magna cum laude. He was a poindexter of the Jewish religion. He was smart. He was aggressive. So... The picture we first see about Paul's before Christ experience was that he was religious. He advanced in Judaism. And he says, I was being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. We need to remember something. When you speak about Pharisees, when we talk about Pharisees, you immediately conjure up this evil image, right? But to a Jew back then, the Pharisees were the most religious people that walked the landscape. In fact, they were considered the closest you could get to God. So imagine what the Jews thought when Jesus comes trucking along and he says, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you ain't going to get to heaven. That was a shock to them. How can we ever attain, let alone exceed, the righteousness of these most religious, righteous people who are the closest to God. The point here is that it is possible to be very religious and to be very wrong. It is possible to be very sincere in what you believe and sincerely religious and be sincerely wrong. And it is also, now get this, possible to be right up here and to not be saved. See, it's possible to know the facts. And Paul was a Pharisee, yes, but by and large, he was a Jew. Jesus said salvation was through the Jews. He believed in the scripture. By and large, he was right, but he wasn't saved. And he was the first to admit that. You know, it's not enough to know the facts, is it? You can know all the facts about God and not know God, right? And it's not enough to know the textbook. It's not enough to have a doctrine of God and to say, well, I, I have this textbook here. I'm a Christian because I got the book from class. Okay? Suppose that you had a racquetball book. And there's a book all how to play racquetball. It told you how to hold the racket. told you what clothes to wear. How to hit the ball, how to bend over. How to hit it, the whole bit. And you could carry this book around 
Wherever you went, carry it under your arm. You could underline it. You could put stars by all the neat places. Write wow next to something that you really saw that was great in there. I think you're getting my drift. Somebody could say, hey, do you play racquetball? Well, yeah, I got a book. I play all the time in the book. No, that's not it. You're not a racquetball player till you're out on the court, right? The book is only preparatory to get you out on the court. You've got to get geared up, get the racket in your hand, put the ball and go for it. Learn how to play. It's not enough just to have a textbook and to underline it and put stars by it. So I'm a Christian. Yeah, I got a book, a Christian book. This is preparatory to experiencing the change of the power of God in our lives. Paul was religious. He had the books. He had the religious training. He had the learning, but he missed God. Many people make the goal the book. That's it. They carry the book. They read the book. They underline the book. Not realizing that this is preparatory to taking all that's written in it and living it in our lives. That's the goal of studying the Scripture. It's a goal of coming to church. It's preparatory to walking and encountering Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was not only religious, but he was dangerous. Verse 13. For you have heard, he had a reputation, of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. This guy was a radical Jew. He believed, you see, that the Christians were a cult. And he had to do everything he could to stamp them out. You wouldn't want to pass a tract out to this guy when he was on one of his rampages. Because the book of Acts says that Paul was consenting unto Stephen's death. And he would take men and women and he would throw them into prison or have them executed because they believed in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 9, it says Paul was breathing out slaughterings and threatenings to the church. He thought that Jesus was an imposter. And so his mission in life became to go out and to imprison all of the people who said they were Jews, who claim now to be Christians, to put them in prison. You've heard of my former conduct, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I think that this was always a dark spot in Paul's memory banks. I know it was. He was always ashamed of it. He'd always bring this up. He said, I'm the least of the apostles. I persecuted the church. Paul never forgot his past. He always remembered what he was like and what it was like to be without Jesus Christ in the world. He knew and he remembered. He never forgot that. Philippians, I love what Paul says. He talks about his former life in Judaism, all that he had, all the wealth that he had, all the knowledge that he had, all the reputation that he has. He says, you know what? I counted all loss that I could know Jesus Christ. I never forget what it was like to be without Christ, but I'm glad I'm a Christian. I throw all that old life away. Can we say that? Do we miss, do you ever miss your old life? Satan sure comes along and makes it look attractive from time to time. He'll tap you on the shoulder and he'll whisper and he goes, do you remember what it was like before you committed yourself to Jesus Christ? Remember all the friends you had? Do you remember the good times at those parties you had? Do you remember how many people liked you then? 
Don't you wish you could go back? At least they liked you at work. You start thinking, yeah. He's done that to me. I think he's done that to you too, right? I remember as a young Christian how that temptation to look to the old life and to forget how bad it was, what it was like without Christ, how that temptation came, and the devil would work me over with it. Do you remember what it was like? Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden it struck me, wait a minute. I've got eternal life now, turkey. This is a lot better. Sure, times are tough in, in many areas, but God's given me victory. God's given me a relationship with Him. Paul never forgot his old life religiously and what he was like as a persecutor of the church. He always kept that in mind. He said, I've counted it all loss that I might know Jesus Christ. Number one, Paul points out something very interesting to these Judaizers. The proof that his life was real, that Christianity was real, is that he was a hater of the Christians and now he is one. That's a pretty big proof. He said, I hated these people. I was putting them in prison. But now I love them. I'm one of them. I'm preaching the same message that I hated. So the big proof was that there was this change in his life. He could point to it. He said, I used to be like this. Now I'm different. Now I embrace it. Now I love it. Now I follow Jesus Christ. He pointed to that change in his own life. How do we stand as proof for being Christians. How do you know Jesus is real? Do you point to a verse in the book? I got a book. Let me point to a verse. Or can you say, I have had an encounter with God in my life and I'm changed because of this verse. It's I'm different now. Have you ever met some real sweet people and have them uh, give you their testimony to you? And you can't believe they were like that before they were saved? I can't believe you would do that. You're so sweet. You're so nice. Yeah, well, I used to do this. When my wife gave her testimony to me, I couldn't believe that she was a bartender. Hard to believe that sweet, beautiful, godly woman was the way that she said and that her friend said. But that's what happens when there's changes in your life. You're different. We better go on. That's Paul's BC days. This is what I was like before I was a Christian. Now let's look at his conversion. And before we do, imagine what it would have been like. Let's say we're the early church. 2,000 years ago, we're meeting in Jerusalem. And I announced from the pulpit that your arch enemy became a Christian. Hey, Paul the Apostle saved. That's like saying, you know that Muammar Gaddafi just accepted the Lord this week. And he's coming to church, our church. <laughs> Imagine what that sounded like to their ears to have Paul the Apostle, now a Christian, now a believer. Probably couldn't believe it. And Paul, as you're going to see, had a hard time convincing the church that he really was a Christian. He had a tough time doing it. They wouldn't believe him. The guy was too radical before he became a Christian to do it. Ananias. In fact, when Paul was saved outside of Damascus, and God says, Paul, get into Damascus. I'm going to send someone to talk to you. God speaks to a guy named Ananias. He says, Ananias, I have a telegram I want you to give to a guy named Saul of Tarsus. Well, Ananias, it just clicked. All of a sudden he goes, wait a minute. And he tells the Lord, look, Lord, this guy's a persecutor of the church. 
This guy lops people's heads off like mine. And he had a little complaint. He was a little scared to go tell Saul. I'm sure it was hard to convince them. So Ananias went anyway and found Saul in the street straight in Damascus, the house of Judas. And he went in and it says that Ananias said, Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me to lay hands on you so that you can receive your sight. <clears throat> I'm sure when he did that, there was a little bit of fluctuation in his voice. <laughs> brother Saul? Oh, I hope you're a brother Saul. <laughs> Here goes, man. <laughs> and he laid it out. Paul's conversion was radical not only to him, but because he was the way he was, the whole world was affected by it. And these people in Damascus, it was hard to believe. Um, that should really bring a lesson home to us. There are some people that you and I think are beyond God's reach. We've given up on them. We think, oh, they could never be saved. Do you ever think that Gaddafi could be saved? I mean, you think of the radical stand against Christians and against Jews that he has and how he pays millions of dollars each year for terrorism. But you ever stop to think, I can pray for this guy. This guy could accept the Lord. It happened to Paul. There's no one beyond, beyond God's reach. If God could save Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, he can save anybody. And he did that. Now, Paul says in verse 15 that it was God who did it. He said, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Paul could look back on his life and he had looked at his conversion as something that God was doing since the time he was born. That God called me from my mother's womb. People ask, why do you do baby dedications? That's why. Because we believe that God calls people from the time that they're born. He calls them. It doesn't mean they're going to respond immediately. But we can initiate and aid that process of a child calling out on the name of the Lord early by having us all pray for him. Jeremiah, when he was a child, God said, I have called you before you were born. I have I've wrote out a message that you're supposed to give before you were even conceived. The same with John the Baptist. It was pre-marked for his life. So Paul says, it pleased God. God was the one who did it. He separated me from my mother's womb and he called me by his grace. Now, a lot of people have a question about God's predestination or choosing us and our free will. I've had that question asked this last month probably more than any other time. So explain this to me. How can God choose people in advance to be saved and yet God says it's up to our free will? Okay, I, I'm not going to attempt to answer all the theological problems, but I'll give you an illustration. Suppose you walked up to a doorway and the doorway said, whosoever will, let him come. And you think about it and you have to make the choice. And you go, ah, I'll try it. I will make the step. I will open the door. You open the door and you walk through that door and there's a room and in the room there's a table and on the table there's a, a table setting, plates, forks, knives with a nameplate with your name on it. Now you made the choice to go through the door. But all of a sudden you go through and it's as if they knew you were coming all along. The nameplate's there, your name's on it. The door closes behind you. You quickly turn around and on the back of the door, the inside says, chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. Ah, you made the choice, but God knew that you'd make the choice. Paul said, I was separated from my mother's womb. And I love what he says. He called me through his grace. 
Paul is saying that God initiated my salvation. It wasn't through self-effort. It wasn't something that I tried to attain myself. I accepted God's provision. That's an important thing in the scriptures. God's grace. When you witness to people and you ask them if they're a Christian, what is some of their responses? Say, hey, are you a Christian? Well, I got a book. Right? Or, I'm a nice person. Right? I don't do bad things to people. I've never murdered anyone. I've never stolen big things. Does that make me a Christian? Or, I give money to nice people and good organizations. Their message to you, they didn't even answer your question. In their minds, they did, however. They are equating being right with God by performing some feat that they have done. That is called self-righteousness. Anytime I point to my own righteousness, to something I've done, hey, I pray so much every day, I read so much of the Bible every day, I give so much money. Anytime we point to something we've done, that is self-righteousness. We are becoming righteous by ourselves. And that is not acceptable to God. God accepts only one righteousness, and that's the righteous living of Jesus Christ. And you go, how in the world can I ever get there? By deciding that you aren't going to try to impress God with your works, but by accepting the already finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Giving your life to Him. He will change you. He will make you all that you should be. But you can't try it yourself. He says, He called me from my mother's womb. He saved me, He says, by His grace. Now, there was also inward changes with Paul. Look at uh, verse 16. To reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. The second thing in his conversion is that there were constant changes going on in his life. Okay. When we come to the Lord, there is that initial change. Okay. From darkness into light. But that's the beginning. There are also changes that occur constantly or there should be. If you're a Christian today, you should be constantly being changed. There's a fancy word the Bible has for it. It's called sanctification. That is where we develop and we grow to be more like Jesus himself. God is revealing His Son in us. We are reflecting Jesus Christ to other people. And it's a process. When you were born on this planet, the life that was in you was the life of your mom and dad. Okay? But you grew to be more like them in their likeness as you grew older. When you have a little baby, I always ask parents, well, who does he look like? Well, he looks just like uh, her. Okay? A couple years later, they go, gosh, I thought it looked just like her, but now it looks just like him. Like the father instead of the mother. And you notice as a child develops and grows older that the likeness of one of the other parents or both becomes more prominent as they grow older, as they are developed, as they're more mature. That's the way it is spiritually. When we're born again, the life of God is in us. And as we grow, those inward changes, Christ is revealed in us. We become more like His image. The more and more we grow. That's a constant process. So Paul says, God did it. It was by His grace. I didn't try to do it myself. And there was these, these inward changes that are constantly going on in my life. I hope that's going on with all of us. Perhaps before you were a Christian, you had a crummy temper. 
I hope that's changing. Maybe you were irresponsible. I hope you're becoming responsible. Maybe you were a bitter, hateful person. You should be, be becoming more loving. Those are changes that should be constantly going on. You can't just say, I got a book, I can point to a verse, and I raised my hand one time ten years ago. There should have been a change and constant changes as to the validity of your Christian life. As far as Paul becoming a Christian was concerned, he was also dangerous. Okay, look at verse 16. To reveal the Son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Paul was dangerous again, but not to the Christians, to the devil. Okay, he was still just as radical, but he was radical for the Lord. Now, I'll show you what I mean by this. Turn back to Acts chapter 9. This is some of the most fun portion of Scripture. Acts chapter 9. This is immediately after he's saved. Verse 20. Immediately he preached the Messiah in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. He just had the lights turned on. He buzzes right over to the synagogue and goes, i got to tell him. Okay. Now, watch what happens. And all those who heard were amazed and said... Isn't this the one who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come for this purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? And Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. And the disciples took him by night, led him down through the wall in a large basket, which was a trash can. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And they didn't believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had spoken to him, and how he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them at Jerusalem, coming and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. And it, but they attempted to kill him. Everywhere he went, they tried to put out his lights because he was intense. But when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him to Tarsus. He was at Damascus. They tried to kill him. They brought him over the wall in a basket. He went to Jerusalem, tried to go at it. The disciples wouldn't believe him. The Hellenists, the Jewish people, tried to kill him, and they had to ship him back home to Tarsus. Now notice what happens in verse 31. And all of the churches throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified. This guy was dangerous to the devil's work. He was a threat now to Satan. Not anymore to the Christians. But you see, here's Mr. Radical himself. Becomes a Christian, he puts his foot on the accelerator, he's going 125 miles an hour for the Lord. That's the kind of a guy he was. I want to read something to you that I found by a professor at a university concerning the early Christians. He said, Millions of Christians live in a sentimental blaze of vague piety with soft organ music, trembling in the lovely light from stained glass windows. Their religion is a pleasant thing of emotional quivers, divorced from the will, divorced from the intellect, and demanding little except lip service to a few harmless platitudes. I suspect that Satan 
has called off his attempt to convert people to agnosticism. After all, if a man travels far enough away from Christianity, he's liable to see that in perspective and decide that it's true. It is much safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a man with a mild case of Christianity as to protect him from the real disease. Now, no one could accuse Paul of having a mild case of Christianity. I mean, he was infected with the real disease. And he was contagious wherever he went. He was a radical. Okay, I'm not saying that he was harsh and unloving. He just went for the gusto as far as serving the Lord is concerned. Okay, let's close up with looking at what happened after his conversion. Back to Galatians. The logical thing for Paul to do would be to go immediately to Jerusalem and introduce himself to the bigwigs, to the apostles. He didn't do that. And now he has to show these Judaizers that he didn't get his message from anyone else, but he got it directly from the Lord. First of all, he went to Damascus and Arabia. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. After a brief stay in Damascus, we already read about, he went and he went to Arabia. Probably most of the three years he spent in Arabia and then he went back to Damascus. Why was he alone for three years? We can only speculate. I believe it was because he needed to be alone and hear directly from the Lord. He says that later on, that he received these revelations directly from God himself. Where? Well, he was in Arabia for three years. He was alone. He had a lot to think about. He was a Jew. He had to reconcile the Old Testament scriptures with Jesus. He had to ponder all of these things, these strange happenings in his mind. He was alone with the Lord. Now, my point that is relevant to us is that Paul was used very powerfully. But he wasn't powerfully used with a lot of results until after he had spent time with God. We tend to minimize preparation. We really do. Paul spent three years in Arabia, seven years in Tarsus, his hometown, before he was out into the ministry. Ten or eleven years he spent in preparation before he was even out there doing it from the time he was saved. I mean, we think, gosh, I've been a Christian now a year. I should be in Billy Graham's crusade. I'm not saying we shouldn't go out and, and, and be involved. I'm saying we should. But don't minimize preparation. I've seen rock stars get saved and two months later they're on stage. That's baloney. There's no preparation there. They've got no foundation except a big name. We minimize preparation before Jesus was even into public ministry. He was alone for 40 days in the wilderness. He was fasting. Yeah, the devil was working him over, but God was strengthening him, it says. That preparation is so important. Next, he went to Jerusalem. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, remained there with him for 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James and the Lord's brother. He went to visit the apostles this time. He'd been alone with God. He's now going to visit the Jerusalem church, introduce himself to the bigwigs, but he was only there for 15 days. This was very courageous for Paul. You know why? Because this, this is his stopping grounds, okay? Jerusalem, that's his job. That's his office. Everyone knew him there. All right? He was commissioned by the Jerusalem bigwigs to go out and persecute the church. This was tough. Paul was not afraid to face his past. 
to go back to where his sphere of influence was in the world and live the Christian life there. That's important, but it's tough. Paul was probably thinking, gosh, I've been a Christian three years now. I've been alone with the Lord. I wonder how my Christianity is going to hold up with my old friends. When I became a Christian, I went right back to my old friends, people that I had hung around with, that I was in the drug scene together with. And it was tough, but it was so important because I had to know, is my Christianity going to stand up, not just alone by myself, keeping it quiet, but in my sphere of influence with my friends? Paul went back and he's not afraid to face his past there. Next of all, he went, it says, to Syria and Cilicia, verse 21, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. Now, Syria and Cilicia is where Tarsus is. That's his hometown. Okay? He went and he spent seven years back in his hometown before he went out on the mission field to minister. This was the ultimate test. This is the hardest place to really, I believe, shine a Christian witness is at home. You know why? Because they know you at home. They know you better than anyone else. They've seen you since you were a little kid growing up, and all of a sudden you say, I'm a Christian. And friction immediately starts. Oh, not another one of your trips. What are you into this time? How long is this going to last? Three weeks? A month? It's often harder to share with people who know you so well than people who don't. My hardest sermons come as I just one-on-one share with mom and dad and my brothers and sisters. It's tough. It's the ultimate test for this guy. In Christianity, he's lived it alone now. He's done it with his friends, now his family. There was a demon-possessed man who came to Jesus. And after he was healed, he said, Lord, I'm going to follow you now. I want to go on your circuit, on your missionary team preaching. And he says, go back home and tell your relatives first all of the good things that I've done for you. Sometimes the Lord tells us, Lord, we want to go to the Philippines. We want to go here. Well, just go home. Share it at home first. See how it stands up there. Live that witness at home. That's a tough place to be. It's interesting that Paul, before he was used mightily of God, had to have that Christian witness at home, among his friends, and that time and preparation alone with God. Now let's wrap this up. Uh, Number four, application. Time to get your pens or pencils out and write these things down. Go home and write out on a piece of paper your testimony. Just like Paul did. Make three paragraphs, a page. Maybe you want to make an essay. I don't know. Write out your testimony. Don't just think it out. Write it out. Okay. And include what changes have occurred in my life. What dramatic changes? What things are changing now? How am I being changed? Maybe, like we said, you've had a bad temper and you're seeing the Lord change that. You're seeing some definite progress of the Son of God being revealed in your life. Okay. After you've written it out, you might want to give it to a friend to read. Someone who can, who knows you. Someone who can evaluate it. You might even want to give it to an unsaved friend. See if he agrees. You don't have to, but it might be a good thing to do. How about an unsaved relative or friend? I just want you to read this. Tell me what you think about it. Okay? Not that you're going to blow them away on paper, but you share your honest testimony of the changes. Maybe they'll say, I don't see any of those changes in your life. It might be a good thing. (laughs) It might be another door to, to share. Okay? So do that. Write out your testimony this week and give it to someone. The second point 
to apply is, how dangerous are you to the work of the devil? Are you a threat to his kingdom or it's no big deal to him? It's a good question. Evaluate that this week. How dangerous are you to the work of the enemy? And third, preparation is so important. Learning is so important. Studying the book is important. But the goal isn't just underlining the book. The goal is seeing the promises in it work in our lives. The goal is having those changes so real, so evident. Because people often accuse us of not being real. You made it up. You invented this thing. How real is it with you? So this week, evaluate how real it is by writing out your testimony, giving it to a friend, knowing that the goal is living these things. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word. And yet, Lord, we want this word to be living, breathing, not just on pages where there's paper, but the tablets of our own hearts, Lord. Lord, you've given each of us who are Christians a testimony. Father, I pray that we could verbalize that this week. I know it'll be so healthy for us. And we pray that you'd even use our testimony, Lord, as you use Paul's to influence the lives of people that we're around. Father, I also want to pray this morning for people who have been very religious people. Very right. They know all the things in their mind, but they know that they're lacking something in their own hearts, an experience of a relationship with you, a true encounter with you. Maybe they've been zealous for the traditions of their past, but they really don't know you. Father, I pray that you'd just call them home, bring them home today. And as you guys are continually praying right now, I want to invite those of you who want to make a commitment to the Lord. You don't know them in a personal way, but you want to. I want you to raise up your hand and say, pray for me. I don't think I know the Lord in a real personal way. I just know him in a religious way. Or I really don't know him at all personally. Raise up your hand. God bless you here. Raise it, raise it up high. They're in the back. Gosh, a lot of them over here. Anyone else? Back here. Right on. Raise up your hand up high. I'll pray for you. Back in the back. God bless you. Anyone else here to the side? God bless you back there. Anyone else right here? Lord bless you. Father, I just, I know you hear their hearts, you honor their prayer. Make this real to them, Lord. That they will decide now to really follow you, to walk after you. That you change their lives, Lord. Transform them into a disciple, a follower. Father, we thank you for your word, how powerful it is to our own lives. In Jesus' name.